1948, there was a book published. Its title, Ideas Have Consequences. In the title, the author gave up the thesis of the book. What we believe, the ideas we conceive of, shape how we experience life and reality. Ideas have consequences. Maybe he was thinking about a proverb from chapter 23 that says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We are defined by the ideas that we conceive of. Now, not every idea about God and relating to God is right. Not every idea about God and relating to God is good. In fact, you and I have run into folks along the way who've espoused some crazy ideas about God. And if we would press them gently to be forthcoming in the origin of their ideas, uh, they were coming from every other place other than God's book. There's some ridiculous notions about God that are believed sincerely by folks. This matters because of the consequence of getting God and the ideas about relating to God wrong. They have eternal implications. Take the singular idea of the exclusiveness of Jesus. Jesus said this. This is a claim of Christ. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. C.S. Lewis is still right this morning, as he said in one of those 1948 BBC radio addresses that came into the book, Mere Christianity. He's either a lunatic who was crazy and thought crazy ideas about himself. He's either a liar, a big fraud. That wasn't true. He knew it, but he said it anyway. Or he is the Lord himself who singularly had a right to say what was true about himself. Paul writes the book of Romans to help us get the good news clear. And it's so important because it has eternal consequence. It's still good news of great joy for all people. A savior has been born. It's still good news of great joy for all people. He loved us and gave himself for us. It's still great news this morning to realize that he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. He was raised from the dead and has brought us under the promise of eternal life. But we better get the message right and allow our faith to rest on the firm foundation of a correct understanding, which is why God gave us the book of Romans. Welcome to this wonderful book of Romans. Today we are in a paragraph in Romans chapter 4. We started into Romans 4 last week. In fact, I'm going to read the verses I preached on last week. Romans 4, 1 through 8. And this morning we'll look at verses 9 through 16. We value the word of God here. The Jewish patriarch, Abraham, is going to lead us to understand the gift of righteousness, which is how any of us 
have the privilege of relating to God, it's through having been given the gift of righteousness, which would allow us to relate to him. Now, let me read you these verses this morning. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, Romans 4, 1 through 15. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, the wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The paragraph before us this morning. Is this blessing then? Only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make the father make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Hear the word of the Lord. One of the glories of going through a book like we are going through is that we pass through every part. You have noted with me that not every part of the scripture, as we read it, reaches out and grabs us by the throat and is so self-evidently clear that uh, we need to get on our knees and thank the Lord for its clarity and it has moved our heart. We've read some passages before. And we've said to ourselves, huh, I wonder what is going on in this passage. I fear that maybe a couple of you may have experienced a huh as I just read that. Isn't it interesting that God so valued our clear understanding of the gospel that he took and moved Paul with great pains to write Romans 4 9 through 16, which we shall look at this morning. We'll go three different directions. First, we'll look at the decisive fork in the road for humanity. Are we going to go this way? Are we going to go that way? There's really a fork in the road that we face when it comes to Jesus. Then let's retract and let's think about Abraham. Eric, why does he pull up this old patriarch? This old Jewish man who started it all. Why does he pull him up? Why is he the example? And we're going to look at him because of the chronology and the sequencing 
When did Abraham begin his relatedness with God? At what point? The terms before and after are going to become really important. Those time words matter. Finally, we're going to talk about three things that this passage helps us understand that we really need to lay hold of so that when we sing Amazing Grace, we don't yawn, but we are moved because grace is really that amazing. So here we go. There is a decisive fork in the road to salvation. That's what he's talking about in Romans 4, 9 through 15. That's what this paragraph is about. You know, when General Bill Dickens, Brigadier General Bill Dickens, uh, was tapped to be a general for the United States Air Force Reserve, now our headmaster at Calvary Christian School, he went through all these schools that generals go through. And one of them he went through, I'd like to have actually gone through it with him, Andy and I, that would have been fun was a school on how to eat and dine at state dinners. Now, you and I, we don't, you know, spend too much time glancing at flatware. But, you, I mean, if we're, we were invited to just really a hoity-toity dinner, we'd walk in and there's an armada of silverware on the right. There's an armada of silverware on the left. There's an armada of silverware at the head of our plate. We'd say to ourselves, huh? What am I supposed to do now? By the way, if you get there, just work outside in. You'll be fine. And then when you're done with your tent, just set it on your plate. When they come and get it, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And it's okay. Nobody else knows how to eat either, unless you've been a general who've gone through this. Because you're trying to figure out, which fork do I use? Well, now, who cares about that? You can even mess up and have a bad fork. But what Paul is doing in Romans 4 is he is saying, don't miss and take a wrong turn at this fork in the road. So let's talk about the fork. And here it is. Let me explain with two deductions about humanity's road. What we're on, where we're headed, where is this fork? Romans 1 and 2 and 3 have brought us to this. Our sin has put us in peril and in need to be delivered. See, so so you, Eric, you Baptist people are always talking about saved. You, are you saved? Am I saved? What, saved from what? Delivered? from the consequences of our sin. You say, Eric, well, I, I haven't been around. I you know, kind of didn't work on my grocery list as you've been preaching through this series a little bit. What, what's going on in Romans 1? What's going on in Romans 2? What's going on in Romans 3? He's showing us who we are. Ungodly, indulgent people. Oh, yeah, they're terrible, Eric. They need Jesus. Yes, they do. Romans 2. The good people, the salt of the earth people, the people that, hey, you know, they show up for work, they get their neighbor's mail when they're on vacation, they, they, they even, you know, take out the dog, you know. They, they need Jesus too. But then he, the kickers in Romans 3, you know, the religious people need Jesus. All those people having confidence in them acting religious and carrying their Bible around and going to church. No, he's saying, you, you, you need to center your hope and your life in Jesus. We're all in peril because of our sin. Without Jesus. That's what he's talking about in verse 15. Did you notice he uses the word wrath? And I know it's not a very popular word. Please note it is a biblical word. And it is not until we lay hold of it that we understand the glory of Jesus who has delivered us from the wrath that is to come. For the law, verse 15, brings wrath. But Jesus brings the blessedness of forgiveness, which is why he quoted David in verses 6, 7, 
and 8. The book of Romans doesn't make any sense until we realize we need Jesus. And what you may conceive of as good night, Mounts, that is a tortured explanation of theological minutia in Romans 4, 9 through 15. Well, it may seem like that unless the only way to have hope and life is in knowing Jesus Christ and having our faith uniquely in him. It doesn't make any sense unless getting that real clear really matters. And that's what Paul's working on here. You see, it's not until you get worked up about the peril of our sin and the position it puts us in before a God who is holy that Jesus will make any sense at all. Why would you need Jesus? Why would you want Jesus if you don't need Jesus? But oh, you'll want him if the only way to peace and life and hope and bliss is to know Jesus. It becomes important. When we were building the Student Life Center, across the street, Dan Lichty, my good friend who was here as a general contractor, he was, he was forever getting on me. You know, he's done this stuff for 50 years. So for him, it was falling off a log. Why every, every little thing I thought, you know, the whole project was going to collapse. Uh, uh, and he would, he would tell me, he just had a, a shorthand Mounts, you're getting your shorts up in a bunch. Just, you know, this is going to be fine. And then he'd go on. He's always telling me that. I thought of his quip to me all the last year this week. Because I don't think you really appreciate Jesus until you recognize your sin and get your, the shorts of your soul in a little concern over where this is going to lead you. And you need delivered. But it's then and not until then that Jesus makes any sense at all. Now the second deduction to explain is there are two roads from which to choose our future. In November 2019, a friend of mine and a friend of our son Ben, he had an argument before the Supreme Court in a case. And we wanted to go see it, so we went. We flew to D.C. and hooked up, got on the metro and Got off on Capitol South, and we walked up to uh, uh, the uh, Congress building, and uh, we, we started hearing this noise. You know, it's, it's, hear these voices, people screaming, like, okay, and heard some rhythm, you know, going on, beating on drums or something. It's like, okay, what, what, wonder what's going on. Well, then we, we, we walked by the Library of Congress, and it became self-evidently clear what's there is we're walking up the Supreme Court building. They're out there protesting. And uh, the one side is beating on drums and yelling and the other side's yelling and the police are there and they're behind ropes and we're trying to figure out how to get through this maze and get in there. But I thought of that this week because Romans chapter 4 is like two groups saying this. There's one group behind the police ropes and they're saying, keep the law, keep the law, keep the law. That's how we relate to God. And there's another lone voice that's saying, trust in Christ alone for your hope, trust in Christ. One's over there singing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. The other's singing there, we, you can't outrun the long arm of the law. And so, road number one is, do we obey the law and do good? Isn't that how we relate to God? Be good, do right, do unto others, be kind. Then you'll be saved. Then you'll be accepted if you have accumulated 
enough infused righteousness through those acts to collectively together as a sum cross the scratch line of salvation. But you got to do enough. That leads us to ask, is Christianity just moralism? Is it just be moral? Is that the way of salvation? Is that the way out of the peril of our sin? Just be moral? Or road number two is this. Do we believe the promise? And in believing the promise, are we given the gift of righteousness? Do we open the hands of our lives and receive the promise of righteousness? And henceforth, do we stand on the promises by faith? And have confidence, not in our ability to obey, but in his ability to save. What? A savior. And in seeing his ability to save, out of gratitude then, our heart becomes changed. And we are transformed. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passing away, and behold, all things have become new. Travis read well, Acts 16 this morning. The Philippian jailer comes in and he realizes that the apostle Paul knows the living God and he doesn't. And he realizes that he is guilty before God and he wants it resolved. And he says to Paul, Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul simply said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That in believing we come to have life. Now, Jesus, dissimilar to me, was always very clear, and he made the profound thing super simple. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are a few. Hear the word of the Lord, the word of Jesus, and the Sermon on the Mount. There are two ways. There's a decisive fork in the road. I ask you this morning, which fork did you take? By the way, there's the opportunity for you this morning to trust in Jesus Christ, the Savior. I I, I met a guest this morning who, Bob Ledford, in October of 1965, led to Christ here at Calvary Baptist Church. And his life, 57 years later, has never recovered from trusting in Jesus. Now let's look at Abraham as a case study then. He brings out Abraham. Why does he bring out Abraham? Why would it be right for him to bring out Abraham? The Apostle Paul drags out a religious icon. This is the father of the Jewish nation. But he does so to teach them a lesson on the grace of God. There's two things we need to understand about Abraham to appreciate him as the example. Why did he use Abraham? Number one, he wasn't obeying when he got started in a relationship with God. Some argue, keep the law, begin to obey. That's how you start a relationship with God. Well, he parades out Abraham. Yeah, Abraham, that's good that he did that. I'll tell you what. 
Abraham is a perfect guy. What, really? Here's where Abraham was. As God revealed himself to him. By the way, it's right where we are. Were. And Joshua said to the people, Joshua 24, 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Abraham was a Mesopotamian. Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. And they served other gods. What? You mean he pulls out an example of an idol worshiper? A stone rock pagan from Babylon who had nothing to do with the one true God and worshiped idols? That's his example? Yep, that's his example. Enter Abraham. That's where Abraham was. Where did Abraham get started with God? Where we all do, as lost as we can be, with a heart wandering around, reaching for other idols to bow down to worship that we've that are our, our favorites. Estranged from God with no thought of God. Well, Eric, how, how would you describe where Abraham was? Oh, something like this. Ephesians 2.12, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's right where Abraham was, and that's where we all are before we come to place our faith in Christ. So the right person to use is Abraham, because we all start where he does. Lost, estranged from God. J. Dwight Pentecost, my professor in seminary, was in Amman, Jordan, and went out to the countryside and did something and was being taken back to Amman by a driver. And they were passing all these Bedouin places, and they aren't very elegant, but it's where people live. But he noticed something about them all. The front of them was all whitewashed. And the front yards, which they had, there's no grass there, They were like the gravel was raked up. And he began to notice this house after house. And he thought, what in the world's going on? So he said, hey, driver, I've noticed that these houses, they're whitewashed in the front. They're humble places, but they're whitewashed in the front. And their front yard seemed to be raked up a little bit. They, you know, spruced up. What's going on? I said, oh. And you'd have to understand that uh, in a former generation, Uh, The Jordanians loved King Hussein, and they love King Abdullah now. Uh, But they loved King Hussein. And what happened was they heard that King Hussein's entourage was going to come down that road. And in order to aggrandize themselves to him, in order to make him think that they were good, they got out the rake and they got out the whitewash And uh, they gave the place a facelift. And King Hussein came by. And they were trying to impress him. I want you to know that there's not enough whitewash on earth for us to put on ourselves. To have King Jesus go by and be impressed. 
In fact, Jeremiah said it's all a filthy rag to him. But here's the gospel, and it's, it's the glory of the gospel. That doesn't keep us from relating to God. If we'll just acknowledge that our whitewash won't work, but his gift of righteousness will by trusting in Jesus, that's when we come to have life. There's one theory that says, clean yourself up and then come to God. No, they have it wrong. You come to God. We come to God. I came to God with all of my unloveliness. And his grace is greater than all my sin. For where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. You can see that in Abraham. He didn't have an elegant start. He was a pagan idol worshiper in Babylon. The last thought in his mind was knowing the living God. Now, there's a second reason why they focus on Abraham, and it's this. He was gifted righteousness before the law was ever given. You see, the religious people who were a fan of being good for God to accept them, they don't, and look at Abraham, he's the good guy. Aha, Paul. He obeyed the law, and that's why he was on God's team. God recruited him after he obeyed the law. Really? Paul said, let's think about Abraham. Abraham lived here. Yes, he did. He lived right there. 430 years later, God gave Moses the law. So you're telling me he was justified by keeping the law? How? He didn't even have the law for 430 years. Seems like your timing's off. Now, the timing words in... um, Verse 10, matter. Did you note them with me? How was he, it counted to him? Was it, here's the time word, before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Oh, I'll tell you what. He was credited for being a good guy and religious and accepted by God after he was circumcised. Oh, Really? When was he circumcised? What did Moses say? Moses said he was circumcised. He told him to, God told him to be circumcised in Genesis 17. But in Genesis 15, before he ever got to Genesis 17, before being told to be circumcised, God declared him to be righteous. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him to be righteous. So he was righteous before he obeyed. He was righteous before he was circumcised. And therefore, for those who've never been circumcised, he's an example of believing the promise of God and being given the gift of righteousness. So if you've never been circumcised, there's hope for you. Remember, the Gentiles were the pagan, godless people who illustrated that by they weren't even circumcised. That's what the Jewish opinion was. And Paul said, you know what? There's hope for the pagan godless if they'll just trust in the promise. But then he said, there's hope for those who are circumcised as long as they are trusting in the promise. Because Abraham's an example to both. That's what he's discussing here. Some people view obedience as like, well, obeying God's law is like the jumper cables that jumpstart the battery of our Christian life, and we get started with God through obedience. Now, by the way, 
I'm preaching on Romans chapter 4. I'm very much an advocate of obedience. I'm not preaching against obedience, but only trusting in obedience to be accepted by God as a locus of our trust. Because jumper cables will take a battery that's down and will bring it up so you can start the car. But in this analogy, what you need is not jumper cables of obedience. You need a new battery. It won't start. We don't begin to obey till the Spirit of God gives us the ability to respond. And that comes after we believe. That's what Paul's getting at here. And he, he gets real. He say, Eric, okay, you've said this. That, Paul said this. And he got quite involved in the saying of it, did he not? Now, you can't use Abraham as our hero for a self-salvation project because he didn't save himself. God saved him through giving him a promise that he received. Well, now how does the gift of salvation work out then? How does this gift work out in this so great a salvation, a line from Hebrews 2, 4? The free gift of salvation works out in three assertions. Number one, the free gift of salvation brings life to the believer. Don't forget 324. Our, we are justified by his grace as a, here's the term, gift. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin, death. But the free gift of God, eternal life. Salvation is a free gift, not earned or deserved. When did Abraham become alive to God? When he believed the promise. And Abraham believed God and, he was rec- and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. At the reception of the gift, Abraham comes to life spiritually. When he was there and God said, Abraham, look at the skies. Look at the stars of the skies. That's how many children you will have. The text says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He begins there. There was really an hour when he first believed, and it's Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. And notice verse 11, he talks about circumcision being a sign, being a seal of the covenant. Well, he obeyed as an expression of the reality of the life that he had come to after he believed. And corresponding to that, baptism becomes a public act which represents what's already happened in the person's life in that they are brought to life spiritually in regeneration. And then baptism celebrates that with, as it were, a coming out party to this new faith in the promise. So he's declared righteous before circumcision. He's declared righteous before his obedience. He's declared righteous before that heroic act of offering his promised son to God in Genesis 22. That was all settled beforehand. This logic is just absolutely devastating to those who want to use him as an example. Our life, after we come to believe the promise, is to be full of a responsive joy and a pursuit of this one who loved us and gave himself for us. Now, the second assertion is this. The free gift of salvation is available to all peoples who believe the promise. 
In chapter 4 and verse 9, Paul is running out Jewish exclusivism. They were saying, you've got to be a Jew, you've got to be circumcised, become one of us, and then maybe there's a chance for you to be delivered from the peril of our sin. Paul says, no, you don't have it. Great is the heritage of the Jewish people in Abraham. But Abraham believed the promise. Any Gentile who believes the promise will come to life as well. Jesus is for everybody. No one is excluded from the offer of the promise. The invitation is still there this morning. Verily, verily, I say to you, John 6, 47, he who believes has eternal life. And so it begs the question this morning, have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's not trusting in you being good. It's trusting in him being a great savior and the promise that if we would just trust in him, we could come to have life. For the religious zealot, Jesus is for you. Give up your zeal and religious acts and give yourself to Jesus. For the disinterested godless, Jesus is for you. He's a universal savior. God so loved the world, the whole world. Verses 11 and 12, Abraham is the father of all who will believe, Jewish or Gentile. And our status with God hangs on one peg only. Do we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? And in believing, we come to have life. Finally, the gift of salvation keeps the integrity of the promise of God intact. Verse 14, God promised, if you believe, you will have life. That promise is, and here are the two words that Paul uses in verse 14, null and void if we don't need that promise in order to come to have life. Because if we can just keep the law and be saved, then we don't need the promise of God and we have abrogated the promise of God to the back 40. Doesn't matter. But if the promise of God and resting in it is the only way to salvation. It's not null and void. It's front and center and celebrated by gospel churches who want to honor the Lord. In these verses, Paul's saying, you've missed it. It's not what you have done in obedience. It is what God has done and accomplished in grace. I looked up this week where the phrase came. I thought of it coming in on a wing and a prayer. Where in the world did that phrase ever come from? It actually came from a 1942 movie called The Flying Tigers. Guy was landing a plane. It doesn't make any aeronautical sense to me, but he was landing the plane with one wing. And he radioed the tower and said, I'm coming in on a wing and a prayer. His hopes were hung on my one wing and my prayer. That's pretty risky. No. Our hopes are not hung on some of Jesus and all the good that we are doing. Our hopes are hung on the promise of a good and gracious God who takes us like we are as godless adulterers, idolaters. And he invites us to simply believe such that then our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. What is the address of your hope this morning? Oh, there's no security. There's no certainty. There's no guessing in resting our lives on the certain promise 
of a God who keeps his promises and follows through. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be delivered. And when that deliverance grips us, it has a way of inexorably reshaping who we are and how we look at life. What a Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you for even the pains Paul goes to explain it. Thank you for the good news that's still of great joy for everyone who is resting alone in Jesus, who singularly saves. What a Savior. What grace. Oh God, now hear us as we respond to the text and respond to you and give up our arrogant presumption or any confidence we have that we're pretty good and embrace the wonderful Savior disclosed to us in Jesus Christ, our Lord, whose name